This is unstructured. Hey everybody, I have the second part of the Dave Freeze experience. Dave Freeze first appeared in episode 85, and I really recommend you guys check that one out. Before this, you don't have to, we're going to cover different things, but episode 85 is the Dave Freeze origin story, if you will, how he turned into a great influencer lawyer that he is today. How's it going, Dave? Good. And I'm honored, both honored and surprised to be back. <laughs> well, I want to start out right out the gate. A lot of what you talk about, you wrote a book about how to teach or how to talk to kids. Mm -hmm. a few years back, right? Yeah. It's really uh, like, I think of it as like a Bible of how to communicate across generations. Okay. So you just framed it in one way to, for publishing, but it's a much wider message. It is. In fact, I have lots of times business people call me after they read it and go, yeah, thanks. That really helped with my kids. And by the way, it was outstanding <laughs> when it came to bringing discipline to Susie at the front desk too. So, Oh, really? Okay. Now, um, one of the things I think you've talked about in other interviews, um, I, I haven't been through the book yet. I apologize. Um, is kind of a Carol Dweck mindset. Are you familiar with Carol Dweck? I am. Yep. Okay. And that is sort of the mindset of saying, instead of saying, God, you're so smart. You're so good. You're so wonderful. Saying something like, boy, you really try hard. It is impressive. The effort you put forth. Is that kind of what you're also um, sharing in the book? Yeah. I mean, uh, there are better and worse ways to trigger mindsets in people um, to optimize. I mean, I'm always trying to use language patterns and the way of communicating with people to optimize their experience as a human being. And if we're working on something together, of course, to make that a good and rewarding experience for them, whether they're working with me to provide a service to our clients or customers, or whether they're the client or the customer that's hired us, I, I want to optimize their experience. And sometimes just being overtly complimentary uh, doesn't do it. Just like when we're marketing or trying to show people who we are, constantly bragging about the good things isn't always as good as saying, hey, this isn't for everybody. Here's a problem. This is the kind of person that this might not work for. So it might not be for you. So I do have a little bit of a contrarian quality in me. I'm not all about the complimenting. I'm, all not, I'm not all about touting who we are and what we do. I saw a great example of this recently. There was a, um, it was a mountain in Colorado and they had, I think they bought a billboard um, and they had a map up of their trails with the double diamond highlighted. And then they had a one-star review on Yelp or something that said, this trail was hideous. I, oh. I'm not that good a skier, but I couldn't even get there. It was like a nightmare. And then the, basically the ad copy said, yeah, we're not for everybody. But if you... <laughs> Okay. That's, oh God, that's perfect. Have you, I, have you read Seth Godin? I have a feeling. Uh, I have read Seth Godin, but I am woefully behind the times. So I, he's probably written several books that I haven't read. And I, and this is a good reminder to get back to them. Yeah. That's, that's something that he preaches really hard. Um, his purple cow philosophy mm -hmm. or, or, or literally what you just said is to find your narrowest possible audience with them. They're trying to find those 10,000 mm -hmm. wannabe death seekers. Yes. But those 10,000 
will fly in from around the world. And that's all they need. Yeah, and they'll succeed. tell all their other psycho buddies. Right, and that's all that place needs to thrive from now until the end of time. Mm-hmm. So that that fits right into that. Now, you you brought up before though, um, that being a technique in sales, mm-hmm. and Forward. the whole yeah. um, pointing out uh, a problem with your product before people see it, or or um, I don't know if you've read Robert Cialdini mm-hmm. at all with influence. Mm-hmm. He actually criticizes that uh, methodology mm-hmm. a little bit and calling it a a manipulation. Um, as an example, he pointed out a, a waiter that he worked with who would say to whoever the first person was, whatever they picked on the menu, it didn't matter. He go, oh, that's not as good tonight. You may want to try. And he point something that was just a little bit cheaper. Mm-hmm. So uh, I find it hilarious that Cialdini is worried about manipulation for a couple of reasons. Uh, I would contend that everything that we do, whenever we communicate, we're manipulating. Anytime we open our mouth, we're telling a story to entertain somebody, or we want them to think more highly of us, or we want them to buy our product, or we want them to have a good day, whatever it might be. We're always manipulating people. And so I'm fond of saying all human communication is manipulation. The only thing that matters is what the intent is behind it. Although there's a (laughs) distinction. So if what Cialdini means is it's manipulative in a negative way, that's what he meant. Yeah, I would disagree with him. And I would say that his example is manipulative, but w- this is manipulative as well. But I would argue not in a negative way because they're pointing out to people who shouldn't be on this black diamond that this is not for them. And they are right. calling to attention exactly the right people who could safely do this, that this might be exactly what they want. So it would be irresponsible and manipulative if they wanted mediocre mid-level skilled skiers to come and ski on that. But if they're taking precautions to attract the right people, to make sure that the right folks are going on that trail and that the wrong ones are going on other trails that don't belong on there, that's all good. And, And again, it does come down to the intent behind the marketing or the sales or whatever it might be. But I do agree. I I contend all, all communication. Every time we open our mouths, we're manipulating for good or evil. I think that the um the black diamond that you mentioned though, and the um Cialdini reference I gave are almost a perfect A B of that though. Yeah, I think so. Because what you gave us responsible and the waiter in the restaurant who was doing that was deliberately shaping things to just get a bigger bill out of the people. Yes. Two different things. So one is very responsible and actually very helpful using the same technique Mm -hmm. as the other one. So I think there is definitely a dark side and a light side. Yep. And which is, which is why we have to keep our eye on intent. Because the other thing is, as human beings, there's always all this stuff going on outside of conscious awareness where maybe we've simply rationalized how we're doing this. Um, and we'll never be perfect at it. But uh, I mean, I'm in the practice of asking myself before I do these things, am I clear on what this person really wants? So another good example of this is if we were to talk about marketing again, if you really understand what the audience is that most benefits from your product, they get it or their service, they get an incredible benefit from it. Lots of times people won't act unless there are really good reasons for them to act and it solves a really Mm -hmm. bad problem and it's, and it gets rid of a fear. So 
I, I always try to figure out what causes my clients and my customers to have anxiety and fear. And then if I'm, if I'm pretty sure that I could solve that for them, then I will say, here's what this does to solve that fear. Because for many people that might not otherwise buy or act, it is only the thought of getting rid of this anxiety or fear that motivates them. So, uh, but I have to be careful. I'm always asking myself, is that why you're doing it? Or because you want to sell some more of this product or service? Do you also help, um, help with that um, in fighting the paradox of choice? So tell me what you mean by that. Sometimes people get overwhelmed if you say, here's my 32 flavors of ice cream. Yes. It might be easier for people to say, would you like chocolate or vanilla today? Yeah. So this is great that you asked this question. When I'm, uh, I can think of a really clear example in both when I'm selling, speaking, or training, and when I'm doing advanced high-level estate planning for people. I'll tell estate planning clients, of course, there are literally millions of variations of the way that you could do your estate planning. But for people who have three kids and your level of wealth and the concerns that you've expressed to me, there are four that most people choose between or among. Do you want me to tell you about those? Perfect. And, and two and, that you'd recommend. Yep. And then typically <laughs> of those four, they're on some kind of a continuum where we could get rid of one or two of them and we're getting down to a controllable number because this is estate planning is very complicated and highly individualized, but you have to find a balance point between getting everything that the client wants in there and not making it so complicated that they don't go forward. Cool. And now when we're talking about your legal career, um, you are a trained hypnotist. Yes. And a natural. Me and Scott Adams. There you go. (laughs) Do you practice in the courtroom? So it's the nature of what I do. Uh, I'm a trust estates lawyer that I'm almost never in the courtroom. Years ago, I was a trial lawyer. And then fewer years ago, I used to try uh, these kinds of cases involving wills and trusts. But as Mm. my clients became more numerous and more successful, it was hard to juggle having a very uh, regimented schedule. Like when the CEO of XYZ Corporation is coming to you on Friday at two, you need to be there. You can't have a judge calling you to the courtroom. So um, I really have phased out of that, and I have other lawyers in the firm that do that kind of trial work, but I hear what you're saying, and here's my, <laughs> here's my answer is, when I was in the courtroom, of course I was using these techniques, and do I use them with clients that come to see me? Yes, and, and clients don't feel manipulated by that, um, because here's what hypnosis really is, what's really going on, is that um, it's a tool to get people to shift back and forth between their conscious awareness and their unconscious mind and to be able to tap into resources that they might not have been aware that they had or that they only used in certain contexts and to get them to use them more broadly and more powerfully and more often, such as becoming aware of a decision-making process so they can make a good decision. So do I use language patterns that a skilled hypnotherapist um, would recognize as Ericksonian hypnotic language patterns when I'm working with clients? Yes, I do. Absolutely. And um, I use them in part to make sure that I'm getting all the information. Because think about this job I have. Nobody likes to think about their mortality. 
And they've got to share with me all of their financial information, as well as their fears and concerns about themselves and what will happen with their spouse if they predecease and which kids are doing great and who aren't. I mean, it's a very complicated, then they've got to make hard decisions about who gets what, when, and how, and who manages it for them. Hmm. So very difficult. And there's lots of different ways they could do it. They're worried about taxes. So I have to gather all this information and then hang it on the framework of something that will accomplish what they want and feed that back to them and make sure they understand it. So if I did that all totally at the conscious level, that would take, nobody would ever do it. So you have to, you have to work where you let people judge is, does that feel right to me? Did, did what Mm -hmm. he just decide to do, did it make my anxiety go away? Does it make me feel like I'm doing the right thing so that they can move forward having judged big chunks of this information. I mean, we could get as down in the weeds as we go through the documents and say, this was your big picture goal. These were the specific things you wanted to accomplish. Here's the language that does it. Does that work for you? But especially in the early stages of planning, we have to get people to think a lot of times much bigger than they were thinking when they first came in the door. So it's a bit of therapy. There's some therapy in there. Yeah. Interesting. Now, I also would imagine in your defense, if you're trained on a language pattern and you have a habit of using it, Mm -hmm. it would be almost instinctive and everything out of your mouth and every action you have would be naturally doing it. Well, uh, so I think there are times when I let my unconscious guide me based on all kinds of things I'm picking up from a client or from an audience about what they need more or less of. I'm not always making a completely conscious decision about that, but there are lots of things where I have a a checklist that I want to go through. Did we discuss this tax ramification with the client? Did we Mm -hmm. get to these things that they want? So I I think, again, I'm, uh, I'm going back and forth between letting my unconscious kind of guide me in helping clients and customers through a process and then very meticulously and consciously going back and checking to make sure that we got that right. Sure. Well, and you're also trying to shortcut it, not to be rude about it, but yeah. they're paying by the hour, I imagine. And if they can get done with you in three hours instead of eight hours, then they might really appreciate doing business with you. Yeah. So, uh, to be fair to the clients, what they generally want from me is a flat fee. They want to know that we're going to get from oh, okay. where we are now to where we are at the end. So I still want efficiency because um, most sure. clients, that's a big goal of theirs. Most of the people that I work are, with are very well-to-do and they're, they, they're very busy and they've got lots of demands on their time. And so they actually want it to be done as efficiently and effectively as possible, which I think kind of drives the client preference for flat fee, which is fine Mm -hmm. with me because I happen to be really good at translating these complicated ideas into workable pieces. And so I'm pretty efficient at that. And I'm also really pretty good at getting people to finally get to, in fact, I'll share a a question with you that I use, if I may. Hmm. Oh, please. Your listeners will be able to take this and use it, I think. Um, When we get to the end, so we're going to jump from, you know, this process of going through to the very end. Now they've mm-hmm. signed everything and I've talked to them about all sorts of things. Then and then as they're getting ready to leave, I will 
interrupt this pattern because when people are getting ready to leave, they're in a I'm leaving pattern. They start to put away their papers mm-hmm. and stick them in the briefcase or whatever it might be. And they're signaling to you, we're done. Thank you. And mm-hmm. I'll go, just a, one more quick question. And that will stop them in the tracks because they're not expecting that. And then I'll do something that you could see, but I'll describe to your listeners. I'll say, is there any other question you need to ask me now in order to feel completely sure and certain that we accomplished everything that you wanted to when you came here? So let me break that question down for you. Is there any other question? When I ask that question, I'm asking the singular and I'm holding up a finger. So this is going to work on the unconscious mind. I say, is there any other question? I'm holding up one finger that you need to. So I want them to ask me one question that they need to. And I said, ask me now. I both bracketed that and changed my tone of voice. So the unconscious mind again goes, wait, ask me now. Not don't think of it in the car on the way home. Let's do this thing now. Because in the car on the way home doesn't help me. Is there any other question you need to ask me now in order to feel completely sure and certain we accomplished everything that you wanted to. So this is, they will do what's called a trans-derivational search. They'll look around for such a question. I only get two responses to this ever. The first response is no, which is good. That means there is no question that they need to ask me in order to feel that. It means they already feel that way, which is an awesome feeling to send them away with. Oh, okay, good. Or the other one is they'll go, why, yes, there is. And it's, they're, they're like surprised as though this thing just leapt into their mind. And you would be shocked at the things that people ask me. And, you know, that means that we've fleshed out this thing before we've actually signed the final documents. You know, we're in the plan, end of the planning stage here and they're going to come back. And often the thing that they admit to me or say to me or disclose to me means that we have to change something. But they might not have done that had I not reached into and triggered their, uh, their unconscious mind to say, what else do we need to do here before I could feel like we really accomplished everything I wanted to? Wow. Now, is that that's kind of a variant of the handshake induction, isn't it? So it is, in a way. Um, it's also a variant of or related to another technique that that I'm happy to share with your folks. I, I went to a doctor recently, and I mm-hmm. had a uh, – it was a functional medicine doc. And I don't want to – did I did I right. did I tell your that's right this I think time? so yeah but I think so is there go, is there another question yeah uh, what else yeah what else right um yes so what that's else kind of what's going on here he was methodically chipping through and digging down this is a very condensed version of that technique that I uh, shared the in the last episode because it makes them sort of run through all of this stuff. And if there's nothing that's really driving behavior, they'll tell you, no, I'm okay. I'm good. I already feel that way. They'll either say that explicitly or implicitly. But if there is something that they needed to deal with and didn't, it gets right to that and right at it and typically the deepest thing. So that is a very powerful question. And when you, do you want me to describe the handshake induction? So what you were referring to when you asked that question is if you go to shake somebody's hand, they are expecting a handshake. And so they're in a subconscious mode of thinking to themselves, I'm going to put out my hand. He's putting out his hand. We're going to grasp. We're going to shake hands. Then we will release after an appropriate period of time. That's not all in their conscious mind. It doesn't need to be. It's a pre-written right. sub-program. Well, what Erickson used to do is take their hand as it was incoming and lift it up and put it in front of their face and say, just look into your hand and notice the lines of your skin. 
and just let your eyes relax and you let your shoulders slump now. That's right, isn't it? And people, because he had interrupted this pre-programmed routine that they were going through, would listen to these instructions that he gave them because they didn't know what else to do. And their unconscious mind would sort of take over. And I've uh, demonstrated this. I don't know if Tyson, one of your other guests, have told you, but he's seen me do this. And I've done it in front of thousands of people and just brought somebody from the audience of a convention up on stage, had them stand there. Then I just say to them, within seconds, you just wait here. I'm going to go talk to these people. And they'll stand there with their hand up in front of their face for 10 or 15 minutes while I go and explain to the audience what just happened and why it might have application in their own lives. <laughs> That is so cool. And um, what's so funny is that all of these things seem to run together. Like the, I think the, it all goes back to Erickson and then NLP kind of spins out of Erickson, mm-hmm. at least from what I'm reading. And um, Cialdini kind of wrote about it, but in sort of the salesy path. Yes. He, Zig Ziglar seemed to be a master of it, but didn't necessarily call it a name. And I don't know that Zig knew why. The things worked. He just tested stuff and it worked and he was good intuitively. Um, So he didn't really know the neuroscience of it. And now we're blessed. Like we don't have to do all of the things that Zig did to figure that out. We sort of understand scientifically why certain things happen. And the science is, as, as I think we said last time too, kind of confirming the intuition of the practitioners, you know, of the negotiators, of the interrogators, of the salespeople, of the persuaders and the therapists. It's it's confirming that the stuff they always thought worked, worked, and we have a better idea of why, although we're just scratching the surface. Yeah, I have a, another individual who will be coming on the show too, Chase Hughes, and oh, Chase. there's definitely some parallels um, between you guys on that, like... Um, he has spoken about, you know, breaking up, you know, the pattern there. And then um, I'm sure you've heard Darren Brown. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, he actually just talked about it again uh, recently, too, about uh, what was it? I guess the first time he actually used that interruption technique, you know, going back to the handshake. Mm-hmm. Um, he was facing a bully who might attack him. And he he said to the bully, just, you know, out of, out of the blue, he goes, the walls here aren't even four feet tall. <laughs> that's so awesome <laughs> and and then guys like what he goes the walls outside my house aren't even four feet tall they're they're tiny and not like spain they're nothing they're just pathetic <laughs> and i guess that just like the guys literally broke down i have and it was <laughs> i have used a similar technique uh where i used bad language so i won't repeat it here but i used it on the street And uh, my wife was with me, and I recognize danger when I see it incoming. And uh, it had a similar effect. It was just as bizarre and insane. It interrupted the mindset of the leader. Eventually, he turned around and he looked at these other three guys who were kind of arrayed around us. They all shrugged their shoulders like, this maniac, who knows what he's doing. And then they (laughs) They dispersed. Yeah. So I believe Darren when he tells that story because I've had a very similar experience. Yeah, and I, I find that all fascinating, and I, and I brought up Chase Hughes because he he goes around training cops to help mm-hmm. him survive. Um, you know how to recognize it. One thing that Chase talks about, and it leads right into you, is the OODA loop. Yeah, you both talk about it. Yeah, Chase has a variant of it that is involved with identifying 
a felon and whether he's going to attack you or shoot you or kill you, you're identifying it in business. So do you want to go into how you use the OODA loop uh, with business? Sure. So uh, I, I find that's interesting that Chase, so OODA, I don't know if, he, if you've ever told this story to your audiences or not, but this is a Colonel Boyd. Uh, he was an Air Force, um, I guess, major and a colonel. No, I'm sorry, colonel. And um, the OODA loop was originally applied to the idea of fighter pilots. And the idea was that you observe what's happening, you orient to it, you decide on what you're going to do, and then you act. When you act, that will have effect on whatever you were observing before. It will have altered the situation. And the other pilot, in this case, when Boyd originally developed it, will have to um, will will not have to do the same thing. And if you can run your OODA loop faster than them, you'll always win the dog fight because you're constantly changing the reality that that other pilot is facing. And unless they're better at you than this, you're going to win. So the way we apply this though in business is that you come up with a theory, for example, of some marketing tool that's going to be highly uh, attractive to the right kind of audience and gently or viciously repulsive to the wrong kind of people, because that's something mm -hmm. that marketing should do. It should start to sort the prospects so that the, when they appear, you don't have to work tirelessly just to figure out who are the good ones and who are the bad ones. Uh, that a much greater percentage of them are going to be looking for what it is that you have. So you come up with, you really, really clearly understand and know your audience you know what they're afraid of, what their anxieties are, what their worries are, what they want, the problems they want solved. You know the language that they use to describe it. And then you come up with a marketing piece or some content or something. You send it out into the world. Then you, you, so that's the observation of the audience, the orientation to it. You've made the decision and you've taken an action. Now, most businesses never even do any of those things we talked about. But virtually no businesses do what is about to come next, which is what the OODA loop does. It's repeat. So now that you have mm. that thing out there, you're looking to see what happened, what has changed on the ground. And, you know, is there a way that we can improve this? Who did we get? What could we tweak? And a lot of times, by the way, we'll create for someone or for ourselves a piece of marketing content or a video or whatever that's super successful at driving traffic. And the right kind of traffic. And that traffic converts at a very high level. So these are all good things. And we're getting that by continually going through the loop and observing what's happening. But then if we just are regularly watching our control and testing different things against it, two magical things happen. One, sometimes the marketplace changes. Technology changes or something happens. And the campaign that worked really well just stops working or it slowly mm. degenerates and then rapidly drops off of a cliff. But if we're running the OODA loop, we're putting time in our schedule or somebody is to watch that thing and see what's happening. We're also doing this magic. So there was a, um, a company that advertised in magazines. This is back in the day and they had developed a control ad. They sold, um, piano lessons for in your home. And it said, mm -hmm. put, uh, music back into your life was the headline and nothing they ever did ever beat that headline. So they were using the OODA loop in a way and they were testing different hmm. stuff in different magazines against that fantastic ad they had that produced consistently good buyers. So you would do an AB test in with it. Yeah. So they, they, uh, that's part of my OODA loop is always to say, once I've developed a control, once I've observed, oriented, decided, acted, verified that it's working. Now I got to see, can I beat that thing? 
And what okay. they did was they ran a new ad, and this was back in the day when typesetters typed it in, and they made a one-letter mm-hmm. error. The headline now said, puts music back in your life, and it outperformed. I'm making this statistic up, but it was by a massive percent. It outperformed by 30 or 300% or something, the best ad they had ever created. One-letter mm. difference. Here's why. Put music back in your life means you got to do something. Puts music back in your life implies to the brain that having this course is going to help you to have music back in your life. And so there's this discrete but very different thing. It's only by running the OODA loop and by trying to beat your own control and then watching carefully what happens and putting the time in the schedule to do that, that you get those kind of magical results. That reminds me, I've heard something somewhere before where they were running um, an ad sentence, like um, Mm -hmm. people to help sell my home, Mm -hmm. people to help sell my house. And they found that the people who responded to sell the house actually sold the house. Mm. But the people who went to sell the home, they had more difficulty actually getting them to move the product. That's interesting. And the difference is because home oh. has much more of a connotation to it than a house. Yeah, which it is carries a, a lot more object. emotional baggage. Yeah, where houses objectified the thing. Right, exactly. That makes perfectly good sense to me. So that that seems to fit right in there, and yeah. and it sounds like you're also mixing a little bit of the Pareto principle of twenty um, percent is worth eighty, or you know, everything's eighty twenty. It seems, which is the Pareto principle, and if it doesn't match Pareto principle, flip it because it matches it the other way. Yeah. So, so here's you're exactly correct. <clears throat> we use the Pareto principle in two ways that are wildly synergistic. So the first thing, and you're you're also correct that it's everywhere. So when we measure time spent in homes, people spend 80% of their time in 20% of the space. They wear 20% Mm -hmm. of their wardrobe, 80% of the time. Mountains have an 80-20 distribution of the heights of their peaks. Trees in forests have an 80-20 distribution. It's just incredible how deeply built into the universe this principle seems to be. Is it related to the golden ratio? So the golden ratio is different. But it does seem right. it's like that in this sense, that the golden ratio right. appears to be everywhere. Like it's just astonishing, as does the Pareto principle. So here's how we use it. And I think we're using it in a way that's super synergistic. So people always would teach when I was learning about the Pareto principle, you uh, you know, tw- 20% of your clients produce 80 or 90% of your income. Mm-hmm. And technology and optimization has actually increased that. It's more like a 95-5 world, but 80-20 will do the work for most of us. Um, and so what happens then if we, if we learn that, we try to find more of the people that look like the top 20% and we bring more of them in. If you simultaneously though, look at What's the bottom 20% of your customer or client base look like? Because typically there's only a few people that have all the complaints that cause all the problems that give you all the stress that tire out your team that prevent you from giving the best clients and customers the attention that they deserve and are paying for. So typically if we take a look at that, we're going to see that they look and sound and feel and they're demographically very different from everybody else. And so we can now produce content or marketing, or we can talk in our sales conversations with them in a way that gently dissuades that sort of person from even presenting. So if we do both of these things at the same time, the synergy is amazing. If we are focused intently on 
identifying and understanding and better serving the top 20%. Um, and, and we are also simultaneously figuring out how we don't have to deal with the bottom 20% anymore. That is um, alchemical, magical formula for having a better quality of life and a much smoother operating business or professional practice. And it works. I mean, a, a great example is price sensitivity. Typically, the uh, bottom 20 are very price sensitive. The top 20, they don't mind paying because they want extra service or they want mm -hmm. extra or whatever. So if you're kind of going in there saying, we're the most expensive because we're the best, you are naturally going to hopefully attract the top 20% who say, I'll pay for the best as long as they're the best. And the bottom, I, I'm not going to pay all that. Yeah. And it's even more magical if you add the overlay of this. Uh, we are expensive and you're going to have to wait longer to see us because we're super busy. And we help people exactly like you to solve these kinds of problems that you're really worried about. Well, man, then it's not just a bald faced claim that you're the best. It's a much more refined claim that you're the best at solving this big problem that we know is is in the front of the minds or lurking just under the surface of the right kind of clients. I'll give you an example from my professional practice. We used to ask people when they came in, why did you come to see us? And they'd say, well, we want to avoid probate fees and we want to save on taxes and we want, and it was true that a lot of that worried them. But when we ask people on the way out the door, which it took us astonishingly a long time to figure out that we should do this, then they, we would say to them, what was the best thing that you got out of this? They would go, oh, I had no idea that a lawyer who knew what they were doing could draft a trust to protect my daughter or son if they got divorced from losing the inheritance. That has always worried me. So of course, our content and our headlines began to emphasize this thing that we knew they were all... and and. Not every client that comes to see us is worried about that, but our very best ones are. Right. That makes that that's perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. So your your clients are actually telling you what they need to hear. So you go to the top twenty percent mm -hmm. and you ask them what it is that they like you do or what they want from you, mm -hmm. and then you just target that mm -hmm. because and they're you, probably what be you will find for people that that just don't have the numbers or experience with this is that that. That, uh, you know, the 50% mark, the, the bottom 20%, they're, they're not thinking the same way as your very best clients. Your very best clients are worried about different things. They want different things. They have a greater ability and willingness to pay for them, but they have to have, you, you, you need to talk about them in the way that they do too. That's something that lawyers and lots of businesses are guilty of. They're constantly saying to people, we will protect your, uh, assets from Medicaid being spent down on nursing home care, but people don't really understand what that means. Uh, yeah. So you need to find out not only what concerns them, what are the fears, but what's the language that they use, where they are before you've got the chance to educate them and make them better consumers, where, where they are now, how do they think about this and what do they say? Like, uh, you don't want to say to a client that wants to protect their son or daughter, we could use a qualified personal residence trust to do that. Cupid, it's called. They won't have the vaguest idea what? what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. No, that makes total sense. And I also like how you were saying about getting them to identify themselves. I, I don't know if you've ever read into the whole Nigerian scam emails. No, but I love the Nigerian scam emails. It, it just astonishes me that, that, that people do these things. 
Well, that's ironically why they're effective. They did a study on it because when you read them, you're like, there's misspellings. Yeah. The English is poor and everything else, but they leave it that way and do it deliberately because people who can pick up on the English being poor and stuff probably aren't going to fall for the scam. <laughs> so they filter themselves out. The only people who bite are the ones who are more susceptible to it. Interesting. And then, so you're kind of doing the reverse on the top end. I mean, hate to compare what you do to, <laughs> to the, the Nigerian scam, but you're speaking in a language that is targeting specific people. Well, and again, it goes to that idea of intent. You know, I'm really trying to find out what they really want and need and how they're describing it so that I can, you know, take them to the next level. For, for example, there is a type of IRA trust where uh, people since since 2014, when the Supreme Court changed the rules, if people want to protect that from divorce for their kids and their grandchildren, they need to do a certain kind of trust. But if you start talking about these IRA asset protection trusts, nobody is going to know what you're worried about. If instead you say, hey, you told me that you wanted to protect your house and your your uh, investment accounts for your kids so that if they got divorced or in an accident or car crash or a lawsuit from business that they were protected. But you have $2 million of assets there and $3 million in your IRA. Should we do the same thing over there? Should we protect it? If the answer is yes, then I'm going to explain the costs and why you need to do it. I'm going to educate them and make them a better consumer so that when they finally make the real decision, they will have done it based on you know, clearly thinking it out. But if I ask them, Hey, if you've protected these things here, why are we not protecting this other giant asset? They're going to have in their mind that they want to protect that giant asset. And that is actually, for most of them, the right answer because they've already told me, I want to protect 2 million over here for two of my kids. Why would I leave 3 million unprotected? Okay. So that makes sense. Um, I, I'm full of analogies today, but I'm like, it's going back, it's going back to that 1960s marketing book that people don't want the quarter inch drill bit. They need a quarter inch hole. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you're saying you, do you have this problem? And then if they do, you're solving a problem. Uh, versus, yeah. Are you worried? Here's this service. Yeah. Like uh, one of the things we say is uh, we, we write content around this that says, are you uh, married between the ages of 52 and 67 with children or grandchildren? And are you worried that if you leave them your inheritance, that that could be taken away from them in a divorce? Does that worry you? Well, if it does, here's a report on how you keep that from happening, or here's why you should be worried about it. And here's why if it happens, you, you know, they'll be protected this one way. And if you don't do it, here's what happens. So you get to pick. Um, and we're, we're at least initially talking to them about it with their language that they have in their head. Eventually, when they come to us, we're going to be able to give them like another little bit of language to speak about it. There's the people like having these magical sounding trust names, but they don't like it until they know what it is that they're doing and what value they have. So, which is cool. Again, it's, um, selling, finding what they're, they need mm -hmm. and then offering a service to fulfill it versus peddling services, which is what that doctor was doing when he kept, when I would finish saying what, why I was there and he'd go, yeah, what else? And then mm -hmm, why? Uh, yeah. And, and because he kept going deeper because he genuinely, I think, wanted to know 
what is it that I really needed? What was really going in my on in my life where he could, and then he would know whether he could help me or not. And I think that's a good discipline too, because we may be in the habit of, of uh, finishing people's sentences or answering their questions that they haven't necessarily asked. And they may feel intimidated. Like, I mean, you're a lawyer, you're a professional and you're a lawyer. I repeat, you're a lawyer <laughs> because people are afraid of lawyers. Sure. And for and good reason. They'll feel intimidated coming in talking to you. So if you're just saying, okay, and what else? Okay. And what else versus, oh, what you need is da da da. And then they may feel a little bullied and, yep. okay, they'll go along with you right now. But as soon as they leave the office, they might feel a little skeezed out and say, hey, uh, I don't know. I didn't feel super comfortable. And suddenly they just don't do follow appointments. Mm -hmm. I even announce to them, I say, I, I've asked you to fill out this 23 page questionnaire. It's not because we're nosy. Here's why we need all that information. So thanks for sharing it with me. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. If it's so that I take you where you want to go and I need to ask mm -hmm. you these questions to be sure I know. But if I ever ask one and you're wondering why I am, or I'm telling you to do something and you're not completely sure that you want to do it or that it's the right thing, you stop me. It's okay to do that for the very reason you say. Um, there are lots of people that would be completely comfortable stopping me and asking me, but there are lots of people that wouldn't be without that invitation. And whether they take me up on it or not doesn't matter. The mere fact that I made the invitation already sets the tone that I'm there to listen to them. Sure. And I'm guessing too, that you're watching their reactions too, and maybe even stop yourself and say, Hmm, did you get that? All right. Or what do you think? Mm -hmm. I, or, or just deliberately, you know, uh, interrupt the flow. I do. Here's, I, I think we're dancing around something that people sometimes feel guilty about, which is that if you can get better at this. So if all human communication is manipulation, but you're clear that you have a good intent. I want to educate my kids. I want my kids to grow up to be powerful, healthy, mentally alert adults. I want to help my neighbor. I want my relationship with my spouse or partner to be better. I want my team to follow my lead, but also feel comfortable telling me things that they notice that could make it better. If I have to say no, I want them to react ha as happily as they can to that. If we get better, at these communication skills so that we're doing it the easy way rather than the hard way. Um, we are better at virtually everything. It's one of those force multiplier skills. We're better at negotiating. We are better at uh, finding out the information that we need. We're better at marketing. We're better at sales. We're better at managing people. We're better at leading. We're better at romance. We're just better parents. We are better at all of those things. So paying attention to these skills and learning to do them better and getting over this idea that manipulation, that community, you know, that good communication equals manipulation, which equals bad. We have to get over that because all really effective communication has a manipulative quality to it. And you just have to be open to the idea that gathering information so that you can be sure you're helping them to do the right thing is is happening and that you're not making erroneous assumptions and once you get over the idea that communication has to be hard and unclear you're going to be way better at this i mean uh tyson I, I hate to keep referring to tyson it's a guy you and i both know and your audience knows him only from a conversation that you guys had but 
Tyson was always fascinated by a story I told. I would do this demonstration and I would say to a member I'd pulled up from the audience, hey, if I asked you to run out when we took a break and get me a turkey sandwich, if you're going out anyway, and I gave you the money to buy me a turkey sandwich and for you, and I said, please and thank you, would you do it? And everybody goes, yeah, I'd do it, sure. And then I say, okay, so describe what turkey sandwich you'd get me. And people immediately look up at the air, they make a picture of a turkey sandwich, and they go like, oh, it's a thin sliced turkey on white bread with mayonnaise. And uh, But they're describing their perfect turkey sandwich, right? Which is mm-hmm. great. They, they're going to get you what they think is a good turkey sandwich. So the quality of our communication is the quality of the response we get. If I ask somebody to get me a turkey sandwich and they bring me a turkey sandwich that doesn't look like what I want, that's because I wasn't clear. So if instead mm. I said to that person, hey, if you're going by Joey's, I love Joey's with the six thick sliced turkey on rye bread with a little mayo and cheese. That may not be at all what they were thinking of. But of course, they'll happily get it for me. So now, just by being careful and a little bit more effective in my communication, I get exactly what I want. Wow. I mean, and we as humans tend when somebody, when we ask somebody for something and then they bring us their version of it, we go like, oh, that person's stupid. They didn't listen to me. Yeah, they did listen to you. You weren't careful about how you described mm, it. To them. Makes sense. And this is a perfect stopping point again. Well, I am super honored to have been here twice. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. I love talking to you. I hope you're up for a third time. Um, I'm here whenever you need me. Because we have um, other things to cover, like the six-word question, force multipliers, and yes, what else? Don't think of the color blue, and other things. So, so many good ones. Now we're talking about why you're doing things. Next time, how about we explore what the actual techniques are? How. How to do it. And how. Absolutely. Yeah, you've you've got it. I promise. And thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you, my friend. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.